Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson. Hello and welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast. Today we're going to be talking Lake Superior, kind of a, a bird's eye view, if you will, state of Lake Superior. And joining us today is Corey Goldsworthy. He is uh, he works for the state of Minnesota DNR. He's the Lake Superior Fisheries Supervisor. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we're going to just kind of talk about Lake Superior in general. I'd really like to have you on uh, maybe later on, maybe a few months down the road to talk about lake trout, because I know that's a, that's kind of a species near and dear to the Lake Superior anglers. I know our, our crowd and our, our, our audience from the East Coast, they're more of salmon people, but uh, you know, the Lake Superior guys love the lake trout. Um, let's just kind of go into the lake itself. Uh, lake Superior is the deepest of the Great Lakes, both in average depth and maximum depth. Depth. Can you tell us just a little bit about how Lake Superior was formed and kind of the the birth of Lake Superior, if you will? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm no geologist, but uh, you know, especially with Lake Superior, out of all of the Great Lakes, um, uh, Superior seemed to be the most impacted by uh, glacial retreat. Uh, so, you know, the majority of Lake Superior, uh, when we talk fish habitat. Uh, is extremely deep, right? Uh, we, we break out, when we talk fish, we, we break out the nearshore zone and the offshore zone. And the nearshore zone is water shallower than 240 feet deep. And the offshore zone is water greater than 240 feet deep. And the vast majority of Lake Superior is deeper than 240 feet. Uh, carved out by glaciers, uh, you know, it, there's not a lot of um, uh, nearshore, shallow, warm, productive water around the lake. We do see some, uh, you know, bay, natural bay areas uh, like uh, St. Louis Bay, Chuamagan Bay, Black Bay, uh, Thunder Bay. Um, and we do see some near shore shallower areas uh, like uh, over on the east end of the lake towards Whitefish Bay or the Apostle Islands area is a, a good representation of shallow, more productive, warmer water. Um, but especially here in Minnesota waters, the vast majority of our water is, is greater than 240 feet deep, uh, carved out by glaciers. So we have these uh, huge waterfalls uh, blocking any sort of upstream fish migration uh, within only a few hundred yards of the lake. So uh, especially on the North Shore, heavily impacted by glacial retreat, um, the geology being primarily bedrock uh, and clay soils. Uh, we don't see in Minnesota uh, the good groundwater influence on our rivers uh, like you would see on, say, the Boy Brule over in uh, uh, Wisconsin or uh, any of the uh, larger rivers around the, the UP or, or Canada. Um, you know, our, our rivers are pretty much uh, influenced by snow runoff, rain runoff, and precipitation rather than good groundwater influence. So, you know, when we talk Great Lakes in general, Lake Superior is very different from all the other Great Lakes. And then when we talk Minnesota waters, we are even more different than the rest of Lake Superior just based on that geology. Yeah, I've done a lot of traveling on the North Shore. It's kind of a, a destination vacation spot for my family. I like going up there. And and like you said, the rivers don't run very far off the lake as far as, you know, something for fish to go upstream because you're hitting waterfalls. You know, like you said, I mean, some of them are within 100 yards of, of, the, of the lake itself. So not yeah. a lot of room for them to go upstream. Uh, and let's talk about that a little bit. The landscape around the lake has changed significantly over the rough past roughly 200 years 
can you talk about how that habitat has changed and how is how that's affecting the lake? Sure. Yeah. So our contemporary view in the Great Lakes world of Lake Superior is that it's a, it's a pretty pristine watershed. Um, and it is a pretty pristine watershed, right? We really don't have a lot of the farming and runoff impacts uh, that you'd see in, say, like Lake Erie. Uh, we don't have really high uh, city population densities, you know, Duluth being the largest on the lake. Um, so we don't have those same sort of human-induced stressors that we see on the other Great Lakes. And, and thus, we're looked at as being a, a pristine watershed uh, lake-wide. But when we break it down and we look at the impacts of historic logging events uh, in the Lake Superior Basin uh, and, and read some of the, the past reports of biologists, uh, especially in the, in the early 1900s, uh, that landscape was, was demolished. And the impact that we had seen on rivers and spawning habitat and water temperatures was very dramatic. Um, you know, on the Minnesota shoreline here, there was a survey done in the 1920s shortly after uh, the deforestation events that occurred. Um, and essentially, the, the consensus of the biologists at that time was, you know, really only consider stocking smallmouth bass and maybe brown trout because um, not only the deforestation, but then the subsequent fires that came after that. Um, pretty much burned up the cold water swamps that were feeding the rivers and the water temperatures in the rivers at that time were deemed too high to support really any any trout populations at all. Um, so we talk about the impacts of water temperature, deforestation, the riparian area. Now all of the sunlight is heating up the water. Luckily, as we've gone through time and the resilience of the landscape has kind of shown itself, the, refor the for reforestation of the riparian areas, we now have brook trout uh, above barriers in a lot of the, the North Shore rivers again. Um, so our focus, especially going forward, is protection of that landscape uh, and what can we do to further enhance the landscape for uh, especially brook trout production, which is, you know, one of the two native uh, uh fish species, trout, spe they're not a trout, they're a char. Um, but when we talk trout, brook trout, um, they're one of the two, lake trout being the other native trout uh, to, to Lake Superior. So we're in Minnesota, we're, we're really heavily invested in protection of cold water resources that we currently have and protection of that riparian area moving, moving forward through time. Yeah, that cold water is really important. Uh, the depth of the lake and a lot of the factors that you just talked about, they have a major role on that water temperature. Um, that, as that kind of changes, how does water temperature affect the fishery itself? Yeah, you know, water temperature is probably the most important driver of fish production in Lake Superior, um, especially when we talk about uh, non-native salmon species, Chinook, Coho, uh rainbow trout brown trout um and especially on the on the minnesota shoreline you know with the prevailing westerly winds we're on the west side of the lake anytime we see a strong gust out of the west um you know our deep shoreline uh you know it falls off fairly quickly from shore you can throw a rock out of silver bay and hit 300 feet of water easily um, so when we see a strong wind from the west what we get is we get these upwellings in that deep part of the lake like that and we'll go from uh, you know, mid 60 degree water temperatures, it'll fall down into, you know, the mid 40s even uh, when we see those cold water upwellings occurring along the shoreline. And what we've noticed through time with our creel surveys uh, in Minnesota waters is as we progress seasonally uh, in the spring, 
the best fishing for, say, Chinook and Coho is always near Duluth. It's the shallowest, it's the most productive of Minnesota waters. Then it warms up quicker. It's getting water from the St. Louis River as well. So that area warms up uh, fairly quickly in the spring. Uh, and that's where we'll see those uh, uh, salmon species hanging around. And then as that warm water progresses, as water temperature increases throughout the summer, that warm water will progress up the shore. So salmon fishing might be really good in Duluth, say in April or May, even into June. Uh, salmon fishing won't get good in Grand Marais, which is uh, the furthest city north uh, with a port that we see. Fishing, salmon fishing really won't get good up there until maybe late August, early September. So those fish follow that pocket of warm water as it progresses north through time. Uh, and when we get a year like this, uh, where spring, winter never really seemed to go away, spring was really slow to come on and you know we pretty much went from winter to summer and that took place about you know early june mid-june maybe so it was a really late warm-up and we saw those cold water temperatures hang out for a long time uh and that fish community responded right i was uh, uh not getting the reports of good salmon fishing around duluth that we typically do uh but then i talked to our counterparts over in wisconsin and they said you know the chinook fishery in the apostle islands this spring uh, was really heavy. Folks were catching a lot of Chinooks because that's where the pocket of warm water was at the time. We weren't really seeing the warm water we were seeing early in the season around Duluth. Um, so anytime we get ice cover events or or winter seems to hang on and, and we get those cold water temperatures, those fish respond to that absolutely, especially for anglers that are out there trolling around trying to get a bite. Um, you know, it, it really takes some warm water to get the, the metabolism of those non-native salmon up to want to start feeding. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason why, too, water temperature is why you see, you know, 30-pound Chinooks on Lake Michigan. And and you'll see, you know, a few years back, the the top winner for Chinook salmon in the Silver Bay Salmon Classic was three pounds, right? Uh, there's a, a, a longtime researcher on Lake Superior. Um, you know, he's got a great quote that Lake Superior isn't a salmon lake. It's barely a good lake trout lake. It's a really good Siskiwet lake. And Siskiwet is the the deep water form of lake trout that we see in those waters deeper than uh, 240 feet. And that's just the habitat that we have to deal with, right? I mean, when we talk about fish production, the limitations to fish production, we're really hampered by habitat and and uh, water temperature is one of those, that's thermal habitat for us. So those are the big drivers for us and, and the, the makeup of our fish community on Lake Superior responds to that. Yeah, I hear you talking about talking with the folks in Wisconsin. You know, Lake Superior obviously isn't just a, a Minnesota lake. You're, you're sharing it with Wisconsin. You know, you're sharing it with with, with uh, Michigan. You're sharing it with Ontario. Can you talk a little bit about the partnership with everyone involved there when it comes to managing the fishery? Yeah, so, you know, there's a long history of attempted collaboration among uh, the U.S. and Canada and all the states around the Great Lakes. You know, this goes back into the late 1800s where, uh, you know, they were attempting to collaborate on um, a standardized commercial fishing regulations. Um, and uh, they really couldn't get any of the states to come to agreement on um, closed seasons or gear restrictions or anything along those lines. So that sort of collaboration never really occurred until uh, the mid-1950s when sea lamprey were having an effect on lake trout in Lake Superior. Uh, lake Superior was the last lake to be infested by uh, sea lamprey. And so it took until the mid-1950s for us to really see our lake trout population be impacted. At this time, 
essentially all of the other lake trail populations in the Great Lakes were wiped out. Lake Superior was the only Great Lake to retain uh, any wild lake trout. Uh, so that really prompted everybody to kind of, you know, kind of have a moment of going, we need collaboration, we need it now. So uh, the treaty between the United States and Canada on uh, controlling sea lamprey or coming up with a, a way to control sea lamprey, really that's what established the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. And that's what's established the collaboration that we see today. So uh, all of the agencies, state, federal, tribal agencies around the lakes are part of the Great Lakes Fishery Commission um, uh, framework. Uh, we have lake committees at each level or at, for each lake. Those are made up of kind of the higher level policymakers uh, in each of the agencies. And then we have technical committees on each lake, which are made up of the biologists, managers, the people that bring the science to the table and leave, leave the politics out of it. Um, so that's really where we've, we get the, the lake-wide collaboration is through the Great Lakes Fishery Commission framework. And, and uh, uh, from the technical committee standpoint, we meet twice a year, we discuss um, you know, any issues that we're seeing, we go through standard, we all have standardized assessments. We run the same gear at the same places each year so we can compare lake-wide uh, what we're seeing in our fish populations. Um, so we really do have a really good uh, uh, collaboration, uh, a really good team attitude especially on Lake Superior among biologists and researchers and managers across the lake. Well, lake trout is probably the most popular target species for anglers in Minnesota going out on Lake Superior. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the lake trout that call that area home? Um, we kind of alluded to a little bit with the Siskiwet. You know, you've got a couple different strains running around there. Just kind of give us a little bit of a bird's eye view angle of the lake trout on, on the North Shore. Yeah, sure. So historically, before uh, commercial overfishing and sea lamprey really had an impact, um, you know, there were upwards of what folks think of like 17 different types of lake trout in Lake Superior. Uh, right now, we kind of classify them out into into four what we call morpho types: the lean lake trout, which are uh, the lake trout that everybody's fishing for uh, in those near shore areas, the, the eater lake trout. Uh, then we have Siskiwet lake trout, which are a fat uh, form of lake trout. They have really high lipid concentrations. Those are found in water greater than 240 feet deep and all the way up to 1300 plus feet deep in Lake Superior. Um, you know, like I said, they're, they're really fatty, so they don't make good table fare. Um, they're really even hard to smoke. Uh, back in the day, they used to salt them and then reconstitute them. And apparently that was a, a preferred method of, of making them somewhat edible. Um, but overall, you know, they are anywhere from 10 to 100 times more abundant than lean lake trout in Lake Superior. Um, just because of the habitat, right? Are we have more deep water than we have shallow water? Um, and so th that population is, is, has rebounded really nicely. Um, we also have a, a redfin and a humper morphotype, which are kind of a, an offshore reef uh, type of lake trout uh, in Lake Superior. So those are the four main morphotypes that we that we deal with. Um, but from a management perspective and from an angler perspective, when we talk lake trout, we're talking lean lake trout, you know, that that strain of lake trout that folks are are attempting to catch in those near shore areas of the lake. What are the challenges to, to try to study a fish like that, that lives in, in that, that kind of depth of water and I'm sure is, uh, you know, not the easiest to target, especially uh, for biologists? Right. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the natural resources world, you know, and from a fisheries perspective, you know, fisheries management and assessment has to be the most difficult because, you know, it's not a, 
we're not foresters counting trees that we can see. We're fisheries folks trying to count fish that we can't see. Um, so in particular, you know, the, the um, more difficult part of assessment on Lake Superior is, you know, <laughs> that just the weather in general and then the depth, right? We, for our assessments on, on in Minnesota waters, we don't start putting a gill net in the water until we hit 120 feet deep. Uh, and that'll stretch out all the way out to 200, to almost 300 plus feet deep. So just the logistics and the gear type and the boat and, and the infrastructure and the crew size that you need to do effective lake trout assessments on Lake Superior um, is quite substantial. Um, and, you know, we have uh, gill net lifters, uh, heavy equipment. You know, we've, we've got what's considered a small boat. It's a 31 foot custom built Lake Assault out of Superior, Wisconsin. Um, it serves us very well because we have to be mobile. We don't have a lot of ports on the North shore. Uh, so we like to get in, get out, be able to trailer it and move up and down the shore as we can. Um, so yeah, assessment wise, the, the water depth, uh, where these fish are, uh, the weather, how cold the year is, what the smelt are doing, right? We've seen in our assessments uh, in some years where you know, the previous two or three years, we see increasing numbers of lake trout in our assessments. And then we hit a, a year where it just drops off. We hardly catch any lake trout. We get reports of bad smelting. We, do, we get reports of not a lot of smelt hanging around. So, right, we contend with the weather, we contend with the depth, we contend with all these other variables. And then, especially in our spring assessment, we're contending with, are we timing it right with smelt moving near shore to spawn? Because when the smelt move near shore, the lake trout move near shore. So we think a couple of years in our assessment data, we're seeing where we kind of had a mismatch in our timing where either the smelt hadn't moved in yet or the smelt had already moved offshore and we don't see a lot of lake trout in our assessment. So those are all things that we take into consideration when we're looking at the results of our assessment data uh, in relation to abundance of lake trout. Yeah, you've got a, a couple different things there that make that difficult. You know, and the other thing that I think that people that may, they're maybe not real familiar with Lake Superior is you get out in those depths, it's not like it's a flat area either. You've got all these deep water uh, reefs and, and ridges and all kinds of crazy stuff out there with the volcanic rock. But then you're also dealing, like you said, with, with this bait fish population that's moving all over the place. Um, you know, how difficult is it, especially when you're sitting down with partners, you know, to not be super reactionary when you see these numbers and try to keep a steady hand at the wheel because you got to kind of look at long range data, not just what's right in front of you. Yep. Great question. And, and that's, that's why we run uh, pretty much all of our management actions and activities uh, from a 10 year management plan framework. Uh, so the last revision that we did was in 2016. Um, we'll be coming up on starting our revision plan for the next edition of our management plan starting here in, in 2024 as a kickoff. And we set it in that 10 year time frame, right? We're, we're not going to be reactionary, like you said, when we see uh, numbers from one survey in one year do either increase or decrease substantially. We have to take the long view. Um, and it's not only those little, little things that you see uh, from year to year, whether it's bait fish or water temperature or what have you, um, it's also the lifespan of these fish, right? I mean, they don't become sexually mature until they're six, seven, even eight years old. Um, so if we see, you know, low numbers in one year or from one year class, uh, you know, the, the, the fish that's, that hatch this coming spring 
we're not going to see them in our adult assessments for six, seven or eight years. So we can't be reactionary because we would never be able to see the results of any management actions that we have done until we're at least 10 years into it. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting that you bring that up too, is that you just have this completely different life cycle where a biologist in Lake Ontario is working with a fish that's going to live three or four years. And you guys are talking about fish that live 40, 50, even longer. Let's get into that though, a little bit. You talked about salmon and kind of the seasonalities along the North shore. Um, they were introduced to Lake Superior in the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, you're not going to find the numbers that you'll find, you know, on Lake Michigan, Lake Ontario, but just tell us a little bit about the salmon fishery. I know you've got cohos there as well. Yep. You've got some pink salmon. Uh, tell us a little about uh, the, the salmon that call the North Shore home. Yep. So we, Minnesota DNR, uh, last stocked uh, salmon back in, I think it was 2006. That was part of our Chinook salmon stocking program. Um, prior to that, uh, the last coho that we stocked, I think it was 1976. So the salmon that we see in Minnesota waters and actually in the majority of Lake Superior are all naturalized self-reproducing populations. Um, there may be uh, a few private groups that do some Chinook salmon stocking around the lake, um, but the vast majority of agencies have, have gone away from salmon stocking just because of the, the stocking evaluations that have been conducted show that, uh, you know, upwards of, especially when we're talking Chinooks, 95% of the Chinooks that are caught by anglers are naturally produced fish, even when we were stocking them. Um, you know, so when we talk about, you know, our agency or our fisheries department runs off of angler license dollars, when we're talking efficient use of angler license dollars, having a stocking program, uh, uh, stocking a, a species that we're not seeing the returns to angler that we want to, um, you know, that's where we make those difficult decisions about uh, whether or not it's time to to see stocking and just rely on the natural production. Um, but we do have uh, Chinook coho. Uh, every two or three years, we'll see uh, uh, pink salmon uh, uh, start picking up again. And and they are cyclical, the coho, the Chinook, the pinks, they're all cyclical anywhere from, you know, the two to three years with the pinks and the three to five years with coho and Chinook. Um, so, you know, you'll get years uh, uh, where, that population, that adult population will start to build. You'll see increasing size in those Chinooks and those cohos. Uh, and then, you know, they hit that adult life stage of going, yep, it's time to spawn. Everybody goes into spawn, comes back out. Now you got to wait another two, three years before you start seeing uh, those adult fish into that salmon fishery again. Um, so especially uh, spring fishing, winter fishing on the North shore here, Lake Superior is really good for coho. Uh, particularly near shore, you know, uh, uh, surface trolling uh, rapalas or stick baits works really well. Um, you know, it, I, sometimes I, I, you know, I, I sit back and I watch folks dragging a 14 foot boat across the ice to get out onto the lake so they can, so they can target those cohos in December, January, February. And, you know, it, it makes me reevaluate the importance of this job. Sometimes I, you know, I, I say, you know, hey, we're not, we're not saving lives. We're not doctors, you know, but then I see folks out there that have so much an emotional connection to the resource and they're so tied into the resource that they're willing to do that. And it, it just, it makes me proud of, of our, the anglers and the angling groups that we have, that they have that much emotion and, and drive to get out there and chase those fish. Um, you know, our Chinook fishery, it can be, 
it's 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 more hit or miss. Um, it's more cyclical. Uh, we don't have the the Chinook numbers uh, similar to the coho numbers that we do. Um, but just based on talking to uh, you know those folks at Target, uh, coho and Chinook in in Lake Superior, um, they say the the table fare of those fish compared to salmon and other lakes is is phenomenal. Um, they may be small, you know, our, our cohos pretty much max out at, you know, 18 to 22 inches. Our, our Chinooks, you know, we'll see maybe some 25, some 30 inches um, every once in a long while. Um, so they don't get that huge, but uh, uh, the folks that chase them definitely do uh, uh, prefer them as table fare. You know, I've tried chasing salmon on Lake Superior and I'm, I just don't have the patience. <laughs> Um, you know, I've, I've got a, I've got downrigger, uh, I'll drop a downrigger for lake trout, uh, you know, 170 feet off the bottom with a spoon. And, and, you know, I, I live up here in two harbors and, uh, you know, there's been times where I've gone out of two harbors and, you know, in an hour to an hour and a half, I've got, you know, my limit of three fish, pretty much no problem. Right. I mean, and my actual fishing time is maybe 45 minutes. Uh, so, you know, the, the lake trout fishery in particular is fantastic. The salmon fishing can be really good in those years where those populations um, are kind of on the high end of their cycle. Um, so, you know, it seems like every season around the lake here, um, we have opportunities for anglers to get out there and chase fish. Yeah, you talked a little bit about uh, stocking salmon and you guys aren't seeing the returns. What is it about Lake Superior where you don't see the returns, where you see in some other lakes you know, you see pretty big returns from the, those stocking efforts. What is it about Lake Superior that kind of limits your success? Yep. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, again, is the habitat and the thermal habitat, right? Uh, we're, we're just such a cold, deep lake. Um, you know, the, the non-native salmon that are stocked are, you know, uh, uh, when we talk cold water fishes, they're more they're more of the warm water cold water fishes, if that makes sense, right? They're they're looking for that warmer, more productive water that they would have found in their native oceans. We just don't have that on Lake Superior, right? And we we have it. It might be the top two feet of water um, in the summer, right? We just don't have that thermal depth that you see in Lake Michigan or any of the other Great Lakes. So first and foremost, it's that thermal habitat, and then that thermal habitat drives production of zooplankton bait fish, predator fish, right? So not only are we dealing with the, the thermal temperature um, challenges as it relates to those salmon species, but then we have the challenge of, you know, that thermal habitat not being optimal for that lower trophic production that's really driving the prey fish uh, that those salmon species need. Chinook in particular, you know, they primarily eat alewife. We have alewife in Lake Superior, but the water temperatures are so cold that they're really uh, small pockets of alewife. And in, you know, the the thousands of fish that I've touched in our assessments, honestly, I've, I've maybe seen a half dozen alewife in the stomachs of any of the fish that we've sampled. Um, so we do have alewife, just not in that much abundance as we see in say Lake Michigan or Lake Huron. Um, smelt, rainbow smelt are really the, the non-native uh, prey fish that we see the most. Um, and historically prior to, I think they came into Lake Superior in about 1938 or so. Um, and historically prior to that, lake trout, the primarily diet for lake trout was native Cisco, right? So what we call lake herring, uh, kai bloater, uh, those native prey fish species endemic to Lake Superior. 
that's that th those were the main prey fish but now it's switched to rainbow smelt so we, the predominant diet or prey fish that we see in the diets of our predator fish is rainbow smelt um and you know depending on the year uh we'll see pretty good uh production of rainbow smelt um but you know ever since the mid 1950s where uh, you know, essentially our lake trout population collapsed. It didn't go away like the rest of the Great Lakes. We retained wild uh, populations of lake trout. Um, but ever since that time and the agencies around the lake have worked on rehabilitation of lake trout, we pretty much think that we've met the rehabilitation goals for lake trout on Lake Superior. Um, so what we're seeing now is we're seeing this really high lake trout population suppressing rainbow smelt populations to where, at least in Minnesota waters, um, you know, we think we might be at kind of our carrying capacity for lake trout uh, in Minnesota waters. Um, so then you talk about what's left over for the rest of the predator fish, right? Our Chinook salmon, our coho salmon, our browns, our rainbows. Um, you know, and, and we've got results of a, a lake-wide diet study that we should have coming out here shortly. Definitely by the spring, we'll have those numbers out. But it was kind of a snapshot of, hey, let's look at what diets we're seeing, not only in lake lake trout which is you know when we're when we're doing our fisheries assessments we primarily target lake trout setting nets on the bottom we hardly ever target um salmon species just because our gear doesn't catch them right so we relied heavily on anglers to collect us um uh chinook coho pink uh, brown trout stomachs for this effort so we can get a snapshot of what they're eating as well um, because we know lake trout are, are gorging themselves on on rainbow smelt whenever they're available um, but what are some of the other fish species uh, that the the non-native uh, sam salmon in the lake are preying on yeah that's actually what i wanted to talk about next is you know we've been talking about lakers we've been talking about salmon what about the other predator species what are some other target species that that people are chasing after on Lake Superior. Yeah, one of the one of the cool. I just had a conversation with one of the researchers from Michigan about this yesterday. Um, one of the cool fisheries that happens here in you know middle to the end of December, even into January, is uh, the burbot or eel pout fishery on the St. Louis River. Uh, we've seen an, an increase in anglers targeting uh, burbot in the St. Louis River during that time period and, and having some pretty good luck. Uh, but in talking with um, you know, the, the researcher over in Michigan, we don't see the size structure that we see in the other Great Lakes for burbot. Um, and, you know, I think that goes back to uh, predation effect of lake trout again, right? Burbot are essentially a, a, a swimming hot dog out there. They don't have uh, spiny fins, you know, they're, they're a pretty easy meal for a lake trout. So we've, we've seen 22 inch lake trout with 16 inch burbot in their gullet, right? Um, but uh, in that December fishery in the St. Louis River, um, there are anglers targeting bourbon and having some pretty darn good luck with it. Uh, if we do get an ice cover event on Lake Superior, um, man, it's one of the funnest things to be able to set up on Lake Superior over 100 plus feet of ice, drill a hole and, and sit there and you, you physically being able to see these fish moving through. Uh, and one of the uh, lesser known fish species is our lake herring or our cisco. Um, you know, those populations in the wintertime are definitely susceptible to anglers. And, and the last ice cover event that we saw, um, there were some pretty good catches of, of herring or, or cisco out there for anglers. So, you know, using uh, smaller, uh, really small spoons, 
with a couple of waxies on the bottom or or uh, um, even using a um, some sort of like a, a ant uh, fly setup um, you know because you'll have you'll have your your coho moving through uh, and and you know jigging a, a good sized spoon with a, maybe a chunk of meat on that for for the cohos and then the herring seem to be a little more fickle they'll come by and they'll snap at bigger spoons but if you can downsize your spoon to to something a little more um, uh, easily eaten by a by a Cisco when those when those schools move through it can get pretty wild and woolly uh, you know you're you're reeling fish in and trying to get back down as quick as you can because it seems to be like in that ice fishery you know you're sitting there waiting uh, 45 minutes an hour hour and a half and then all of a sudden a school comes through and all your lines are down right so you're in there with your buddy and you're just reeling fish throwing them away putting them down trying to catch as many fish as you can because it could be another you know hour hour and a half two hours before the next school comes through um and then again with uh you know ice fishing on superior if you can get in out into that deeper water and you know uh get a good sized bait with a chunk of meat down on the bottom targeting lake trout you know the last ice cover event we had here and i went out with a buddy out of two harbors here and i tied into a lake trout that i could not budge Right. I got it about, I got it about halfway up and it shook its head and it was gone. I mean, it was, it was truly monstrous. I mean, you're, you're talking guys catching 40 pound lake trout out of 120 feet of water with ice fishing gear. Right. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's fun. It's, it's absolutely fun. So, you know, if, if folks, you know, the next time we have an ice cover event, folks want to get out, you know, uh, absolutely check the conditions because, you know, you, you heard recently about folks having to be rescued, I believe, off of Upper Red, you know, all year long on Lake Superior, it's, the, it's like that. So you really have to be cognizant about if you're seeing cracks in the ice or what direction the wind is coming or, you know, you don't you don't want to be you want to be in your in your tent. And the next thing you know, you see the current going the other way, but <laughs> it's you on a nice flow, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it can get pretty scary, but you know that herring fishery has got to be a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite things about traveling up there is going and get a nice meal of herring. I think a lot of people yeah. think about herring as you know grandpa's canned herring, but right. you know yep. they they are delicious table fare when it comes to a fish fry. It's it's hard to beat hard to beat herring. They are, yeah, and and you know I think that's you're exactly right on that. Is you know the herring is kind of a it's a it's a misnomer, right? It, it's a it's a relic name that came over with the the Norwegians and the Scandinavians and the Swedes that came over from those countries where they were actually fishing herring. Um, and, you know, they get to Lake Superior, you know, the, the landscape looks similar to where they were. Uh, the water looks similar to where they were. And this silvery fish looks like the herring that they were catching out of the oceans. Right. So yeah, it, it's definitely a misnomer, but they're actually, uh, uh, you know, a relative of the whitefish family. So yeah, they're fantastic table fare. Um, and, and even pure fishing here in the fall, November, when these, when these fish are spawning, you know, I've, I've heard of folks having pretty good luck with at night with the lighted bobber and, uh, you know, a, a teardrop and a, and a waxy. Um, so, you know, there's sometimes you got to get in with the locals to figure out the best places and times to fish some of these species, but yeah, it seems like all year round we have, we have something to target. So. Well, Corey, you've been really generous with your time. We're gone a little over what I promised you. Uh, let's just let me throw one more question at you because this is just a place that intrigues me. Sure. And we'll wrap up. But uh, we did a show on coaster brook trout on Isle Royal a few years ago. Uh, to me, that's just a, a super special place. Uh, give us a little short over, overview of fishing around Oil, Isle Royal. Sure. Yeah, you know, Isle Royal, funny enough, you know, you can see it from Minnesota shoreline, but it's part of Michigan, right? 
Um, so all of your regulations, everything there, uh, either uh, goes through either the National Park Service or the state of Michigan. Um, but we do see coaster brook trout on the North Shore of Minnesota, and, and really in the last five years, we've even been investing heavily in in better understanding coaster brook trout uh, along the Minnesota shoreline. Um, so we do have uh, coaster brook trout surveys. Um, you know, we could do a whole nother show and we should actually do another show just on coaster brook trout and, and the history of them and kind of what we're doing to bring this species back. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just the, the regulation changes that we've made, uh, one fish over 20 inches uh, for coaster brook trout, um, you know, we've seen that size structure increase in those populations. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been working on and, and floating as an idea is a, is a catch and release fishery once we hit September rather than just a hard shutoff. Um, because in some regards, I think folks see them as a unicorn, right? Um, yeah, they're out there. Uh, yeah, we've heard of 20 inch plus brook trout being caught, um, but we really don't have a, a legal angling opportunity when those fish are available to anglers in the streams in the fall when they're spawning. Um, so, you know, if, if we want to talk about rehabilitation of the species and getting some interest in anglers who have been the spearhead of, of conservation, hunters and anglers have spearheaded conservation uh, forever. Um, you know, if we can, if we can change our regulations to a catch and release fishery that we can start getting some 20, 22 inch brook trout into people's hands, I think we'll start seeing a lot more interest in, in focusing on rehabilitation of that species, not only in Minnesota, but lakewide. Um, as in regards to Isle Royal, right? I mean, Isle Royal is, is just a geological oddity in and of itself in Lake Superior. Um, you know, the under, underwater reefs um the depth the structure the inlets i mean it's it's just a, a a complete oddity when we're talking habitat around lake superior uh hard to get to um so you're not seeing the angling pressure that you would um so there is the ability to grow a lot bigger and a lot more brook trout out there uh we're doing some work now um, we've done genetic work with michigan state and we're doing a much larger project now with michigan state looking at the genetic makeup of uh coaster brook trout on on the minnesota shoreline and we should have a better understanding of of the genetic background and the genetic makeup of our populations um but you know in 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 most regards they are not a separate species they're what is considered a life history variant. Um, you know, it's a, a brook trout that you would catch on any inland stream where they're available. Uh, it's just that when they uh, hit Lake Superior, they have a lot more resources available to them and they have the ability to grow larger, right? It's like, it's like putting a, a, a goldfish from a small bowl into a 200 gallon aquarium and feeding it more. You're gonna see that goldfish grow to some pretty phenomenal sizes. And that's essentially, you know, uh, what we what we see with with brook trout as well, very from good. the from the genetic work that we've done so far. Very very cool, Corey. Uh, once again, appreciate you coming on the show. It was fascinating. Uh, we didn't get to about five of the questions that I have, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to having you on again. I, I think you're, you've been a great guest and appreciate all your insights and information. And it's just a to me, Lake Superior is kind of a special place just because. It's a place that I am able to visit quite often. I just, just enjoy that area so much, and it's fun to talk about it. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to come out anytime. All right, Corey Goldsworthy, worthy. appreciate having you on. Thanks to everyone for watching and listening this week, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.